Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss. Now, usually tonight is our 10-minute mystery, but we're going to use tonight to do the first part of a two-part episode covering the infamous Donner Party and Ohio's important role in that 19th century tragedy. Then, we will come back Sunday for the conclusion, as well as our weekly musical guest, and our armchair segment. We've got a lot of ground to cover, pun intended. So without further ado, are you ready, Paula? Ready, Steve. Hi, everybody. Now, back in the 1800s, if you were an American pioneer traveling west, you generally worked your way over to Independence, Missouri, and there you would step onto the Oregon Trail. It was a well-worn path suited for large wagon trains with forts and other resources along the way to help you on a journey that, on a really good year, was still going to take you at least four to six months to complete. You might have heard of the Oregon Trail. It's in every American history school book, and it was an enormously popular computer game. In that game, you would assume the role of the caravan's leader, and you'd have to make critical decisions on how to get your pioneers safely to the West Coast. In real life, you had to be pretty hardy stock to want to even try this journey. The folks who did this usually walked quite a bit of the way. You didn't want to wear out the horses and the oxen that were dragging along all your worldly possessions. But in the 1800s, A lot of people thought they had little to lose. People were always struggling and always looking for a better life. And when reports came back from those early pioneers that California and Oregon were beautiful paradises with mild weather year-round and fertile farmland, well, it sounded like the grass really was greener on the other side. Our story tonight is about one group that started to make the trek to California, but made the unfortunate decision to leave the Oregon Trail and try a newly advertised shortcut that no wagon train had ever attempted before. This group is forever known to history as the Donner Party. Now, if you know this story, you might have just gotten some goosebumps hearing that name because you already know 
it didn't go well. That those families ended up stranded in the mountains during winter and resorted to eating each other to stay alive. But what you may not know is that three of the most central figures in this 19th century drama were from Ohio. That was the man who advertised the shortcut and encouraged the Donner Party to take the unproven route. A man who was murdered on the journey, resulting in a crisis of leadership that had repercussions for years. And the man who became the Donner Party's biggest cannibal. So let's go back to the spring of 1846 to begin our tale. Because if you're going to take this trip with us, you have to leave in the early spring or you're not going to make it through the mountains before the snow begins to fall again. Chapter 1. Lansford Hastings. Lansford Hastings was born in 1819 in Mount Vernon. That's a city in central Ohio's Knox County. His dad was a doctor and he studied law. By the age of 24, he was a successful practicing attorney, but Hastings had the heart of an explorer, and his ambition far exceeded the small town that had bred him. In 1842, a company named Dr. Elijah White came through Knox County, leading a company of emigrants who were on their way to Oregon. Hastings decided to join them. He adapted easily to the pioneer lifestyle and quickly became a leader in the company. A contemporary would later describe Hastings as a bright, handsome, strong-jawed, fast-talking opportunist. Now, after that company reached Oregon, Hastings helped lay out Oregon City, the first American town on the Pacific coast. He also tried some fur trading and some salmon packing, and then he decided to see what lay further south and moved to Northern California. By the way, I'm using state names in the story so you understand where I'm talking about, but know that none of these places were states at this time, just wild and mostly unpopulated frontier. In California, Hastings became a land developer, and here's where he crafted a grand vision for his future. He wanted to wrestle away the part of California that belonged to Mexico and then turn all of California into an independent country, a new empire, really, and hopefully with himself at the head. There was a peaceful way to do this, he decided. If he could coax Americans in the East and Midwest to migrate to California in huge numbers, they could overwhelm the native populations of Indians and Mexicans by their sheer number. It would be a bloodless revolution. Now, we know in a few years, gold is going to be discovered in California, and tens of thousands of treasure seekers are going to rush west looking for their fortunes. But we are not there yet. People still needed to be coaxed. So Lansford Hastings knew if he were going to get a steady river of humanity headed to California, they were going to need a guide. To help them along, Hastings wrote a book called the Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. It was a one-stop reference for the journey ahead. He returned to Ohio while he wrote the book and had it published in Cincinnati. For unfortunate reasons, this book 
is going to become one of the most famous publications to be associated with the American West. As I already said, families heading to the West Coast took the Oregon Trail. If you stayed on that trail, you would end up in Oregon. To get to California, you'd take the trail as far west as Idaho, then hop on the California Trail and turn south. But Hastings thought that route was longer than necessary. Why not travel diagonally and cut off about 300 miles? That could save a wagon train weeks of travel. And so in his guide, he went on to describe a shortcut that left the Oregon Trail in Wyoming and went through Utah and through its great Salt Lake Desert before reconnecting with the established trail through the Sierra Nevada Mountains in Nevada. Hastings described this path in great detail. But here's the thing. He had never done this trail himself. It was a full year after his book was published that he even attempted a piece of it. And even then, he did it in mild weather, on horseback, and not facing time constraints. That was a very much different scenario than dozens of families and ox-drawn wagons trying to sprint and beat the snow. Still, he eagerly promoted his overland route as faster and better than any other, and even offered for anyone who was interested in taking his cutoff to meet him in Fort Bridger, Wyoming, and he would guide them through it. In 1846, the first large wagon train was ready to take Hastings at his word. The Donner Party, as it would come to be called, originally started just as three families traveling from Springfield, Illinois. They were two brothers, George and Jacob Donner, and a third man, James Reed. Each of them filled up three covered wagons and hired teamsters to drive the oxen that pulled them. They made it to the Oregon Trailhead in Independence, Missouri by the middle of May. But that put them behind schedule. People told them so. People leaving on the Oregon Trail at this point should have been gone before May 1st. Well, they dismissed those concerns and forged ahead. And before they left Missouri, they had added the Murphy family from Tennessee. And then collectively, they attached themselves to an even larger wagon train that was on its way to Wyoming. So they all made it to Wyoming in July. And remember when I mentioned Hastings told wagon trains that if they met him in Fort Bridger, he would guide them through the cutoff? Well, the Donner Party was late. Hastings had already left with another group. So James Reed and the Donners had to make a decision. Continue along the proven trail with everyone else or separate from the big caravan and try that Hastings cutoff on their own. James Reed met a man who offered some advice. His name was James Kleiman. He was an old mountaineer who had just traveled from California by horse with none other than Lansford Hastings himself. And he told Reed, take the regular wagon track and never leave it. It is barely possible to get through if you follow it. 
and it may be impossible if you don't. He warned that the horrific heat in the desert and the maze of canyons through the Hastings Cutoff would slow them down. Reed said nonsense. Hastings himself had pointed out there was no reason to take that roundabout course. And if they were running late anyway, then surely cutting off 300 miles would help them beat the winter snow. And Hastings, by the way, he was only a week ahead. They might very well catch up to him. And so, after four more days of resting the oxen and repairing the wagons, Reed, the Donners, and some other assorted families and travelers who had now attached themselves to their party stepped off the Oregon Trail and headed for the Hastings Cutoff. The party now numbered 74 people. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. On the last day of July, James Reed wrote in his journal... The rest of the Californians went the long route, feeling afraid of Hastings' cutoff. But Mr. Bridger informs me that it is a fine, level road with plenty of water and grass. The first real sign of trouble came just a couple of weeks later in August. They'd been making pretty good time for a while, but when they reached Weber Canyon at present-day Ogden, Utah, they found a note left for them by Hastings, who was still somewhere ahead of them. Don't follow, Hastings wrote. This road is impassable. Well, James Reed and a couple of others jumped on their horses and raced ahead to find Hastings so they could get instructions on what to do next. And they found Hastings. But the only advice Hastings could do was to climb a peak, point out an alternative route, and wish them well. Reed and his companions returned to the Donner Party with these vague instructions. But this alternative route was a disaster. They had to make their own roads, chopping through brush and trees of the Wasatch Mountains to make room for their wagons. And even now, the group was still growing. Another family, the Graves, had caught up with them. The Donner Party now numbered 87 people in 23 wagons. So let's move ahead to late August. The party entered the Salt Lake Valley and found a new note from Hastings. The desert lies ahead, he warned them. Two days of travel with no water. So the group prepared as much as they could, storing water and grass for the barren drive ahead. But it wasn't two days. 
It was five days. They ran out of water on the third. The salt flats, meanwhile, had been turned into mud that made their wagon wheels practically useless. They dragged their wagons across the flats and dumped everything they could to try and lighten the load. I found several references that said to this day, you can still see the ruts that were made by the Donner Party in those flats. 36 of their oxen became dehydrated and died or ran away. Members of the party began to see mirages. A survivor, Virginia, she was the youngest child of John Donner, later wrote about this period and said, some cursed Hastings for the false statements in his open letter and his broken pledge at Fort Bridger. These people could not have been more miserable. They were caked with salt and feces and urine. The women were stained with menstrual blood and yeast infections. Exposed skin was burnt red. Lips were cracked and bleeding. Once the party had trudged through the salt flats, they were ready to rejoin the existing trail over the mountain. But the cutoff had cost them precious time. It had been 68 days since they stepped off the Oregon Trail. Those who had taken the long way around had covered the distance in half that time. They were late, so late. Summer was gone, fall was zipping along, winter was looming in the mountains. The worst was yet to come. Chapter Two, John Snyder. By early October, the Donner Party had been on the road for nearly seven months, their lives a daily struggle for survival. Several people had already died on this journey from a variety of natural ailments. The group was about to lose its first member to an unnatural death. I said a little while ago that the last family to join the Donner Party were the Graves. They hooked up with a caravan in Utah on August 10. But they, like the Donner and Reed families, had started back in Illinois. They came from a community called Steuben Township, and traveling with them was a 23-year-old bachelor named John Snyder. We don't know a lot about John's origins, possibly because he had the most common name in the world. It appears historians never had success in tracing his roots or parentage. The one thing we know is that he originally came from Ohio. William Graves, one of the eight children in the Graves household, wrote about him later. The first we saw of Snyder was in the winter before we started. He and a brother moved from Ohio into our neighborhood. And on hearing that we were going to California, he wanted to come along. So father told him he would board him for his work. And they made a bargain to that effect. So Snyder drove one of the wagons for the Graves family, and in his brief time with the Donner Party, he was so popular. He would play fiddle and dance around the campfires to entertain the children. Survivors told of how Snyder would drop the rear gate on one of the wagons, climb up into it, and dance a jig, sending the girls into wild laughter and the boys clapping in time to the music. He could even coax the adults into some playful frolicking. He and others would play tunes like Arkansas Traveler, Money Musk, and the Virginia Reel. 
Here's what author Daniel James Brown said about John Snyder in his book, The Indifferent Stars Above. Snyder, at 23, was muscular, strikingly handsome, and notably genial. He had a buoyant, carefree way about him that put others at ease. Hearing that the Graves family was bound for California, he asked if he might travel with them. Franklin Graves, at 57, knew that he could use the muscle power of another young adult male. So he struck a deal with Snyder. He could drive the third wagon and perform other chores in exchange for his board until they reached California. Now, some of the travelers also had a distinct impression that John Snyder and one of the Graves' daughters, Mary, were sweet on each other, even talking marriage. Keep in mind, the folks heading out west were pretty much going to need to marry each other. There weren't a whole lot of people out there yet. And so the people they traveled with were likely to be the ones that formed the community with them. But interestingly, many years after this was all over, Mary would fight with a historian to remove any suggestion that she and Snyder were romantically involved. She denounced it as false trash. So now we're up to October 5. The wagon train has reached the Humboldt River in Nevada. I'm calling it a train, but this is a loose description. The band was really spread out. The two Donner families were far in the lead. Somewhere behind them, the Reed, Graves, and Breen families were in pursuit. And more than a day behind them, other families were struggling along as best they could. Fragmented and exhausted, Everyone's nerves were raw, patience was worn thin, and people were quick to anger. This was all evident in one tragic moment that is really the 19th century equivalent of road rage. The story is that Snyder, driving one of the Graves' wagons up a steep, sandy hill, had become entangled with another wagon that was owned by James Reed, but in the hands of another driver. Snyder and the hired man driving the other wagon jumped down, exchanged angry words, and Snyder started using his bullwhip on the oxen while trying to untangle them. James Reed saw this commotion and rode up to the scene on horseback. Snyder yelled at Reed about his driver causing the problem, and Reed started yelling at Snyder about his mistreatment of the oxen. This led to Snyder turning on Reed, striking him in the head with the handle of his bullwhip and drawing blood. Reed pulled his hunting knife. Reed's wife, Margaret, tried to enter the fray to separate the men, but she was struck when she positioned herself between Snyder's fist and her husband's head. Reed lashed out, this time with his knife in a move that many witnesses called self-defense, and he plunged it into Snyder's chest. There, in the hot Nevada desert, Snyder collapsed into the arms of one of the grave's sons and died. In disgust, Reed threw his weapon to the ground, but the deed was done. Now, there was no law out here. The party had to decide as a group what to do. Snyder was quite popular. Reed, who many people blamed for their predicament as one of the caravan's leaders, was not. Some in the party called it murder and wanted to hang Reed right there. Others pleaded for a civilized response, 
take Reed to California instead, they said, and have a trial there. In the end, they decided to banish Reed from the wagon train without weapons and without provisions. It was tantamount to a death sentence, but it would spare Reed's wife and four children from having to watch him die. The Graves family offered to look after Reed's family. Before leaving, Reed offered the boards from one of his wagons to make the coffin for Snyder, but the Graves family refused. Reed stayed long enough for the funeral, and then he left. That evening, Reed's daughter stole out of camp at night and reached her father to give him a gun and some crackers. It was all they could spare. Reed didn't intend to be gone forever. His idea was he would go find help and return to a thankful caravan with more food and resources. After all, his own family's lives depended on this wagon train being successful. His employee, Walter Heron, left the party and joined him. Three weeks later, Reed and Heron successfully reached the Sacramento Valley. It was just a whole lot easier traveling on horseback. But there was no hope of going back because as soon as they left the mountains, a severe snowstorm blasted the range, closing the pass for the winter to anyone with a wagon. After reaching snow that was 30 feet deep, Reed was helpless to do anything but head back to California. He looked over his shoulder at the now white summits of the mountain, knowing his family and all the families of the Donner Party were firmly trapped for the season. You know me, I've read this book. I, you know, I consider myself a pretty good, you know, pretty knowledgeable on this uh, Donner Party. But something just struck me when you were talking about in the very first part about Hastings going to Oregon with Elijah White. I think Elijah inspired him and he thought, okay, Oregon's definitely going to be in the control of Elijah. I might as well try to take California. That could be. Lanceford Hastings had some serious delusions of grandeur. I mean, and if Elijah White uh, wanted to be the governor of Oregon, then Lansford Hastings was going to have to find a new territory. And he went down, you know, a big chunk of California was still Mexico back then. And he even spent a year or two in the part that was Mexico while he was making his plans. He thought he could take that whole place over and do it just by encouraging people to come out there and plant their stakes. But what he did not lie about, which you brought up, was the timing of having to leave. Leave by April 1st. Please do not leave Any, anywhere past May 1st. When Reed left Missouri, he it was three weeks past May 1st. Yeah, they were warned. They were warned time and again. And it surprised me because even though they were warned on their way to Wyoming, they hooked up with a bigger wagon train. So there were a lot of people ignoring the timing on this. But, you know, if it were me, I'll tell you, if I'd got to Wyoming and I was that late in the season, I would have just put down some roots and, and stayed there for a while. You know, they had towns, they had people, they they had food, but man, they were just really in a hurry to get to California. And you brought up such a great story of them going through the Great Salt Desert. It was just, it was so frustrating to them. And then when they got to the edge of Pilot's Peak, they looked up and they saw snow. And this freaked them out. And this was right before the Reed and Snyder incident. 
That certainly had to add to all the tensions in that moment. I can't imagine the horror. I mean, they knew that snow was coming. They knew it was going to be a challenge. But the sight of that snow just had to be pure horror for them because they had nowhere else to go. Right. And right before, when they made it to Pilot's Peak, they decided to send a one of their people out, a, a, a man who was a bachelor. They sent him and somebody else out to California to try to bring back provisions. So when Reed made it through, you know, being banished and he made it through, they ran into Reed. And Reed, it wasn't a comfortable ride for him to get through by himself. Well, he actually was with somebody else as well. But he looked really bad. As a matter of fact, he looked so bad when that man who was sent before him ran into him he hardly recognized him at first oh i hadn't even heard that i you know when i heard that he made it to california in my mind i'm just thinking oh that must have just been so much easier but obviously it was a a hell of a journey for him even to do that (laughs) right can you believe that you can still see the ruts in the salt lake flak i mean this story is what 170 180 years old and i looked up several sources that said you can still see the ruts that the donner party wagons made in those salt flats we need to go out there with your metal detector because there are stories about how they bury had to bury some treasure and some wagons out there because they could not have the, the ox the oxen like you said would run away so they would have to they couldn't carry all their stuff. Yeah, they called it caching. They would uh, not only, as you pointed out, they not only buried their possessions. In some cases, they buried their entire wagon. <laughs> I can't even imagine having the energy after all they had been through to stop and make a hole big enough to put their entire wagon in it. But they did. Yeah, a lot of people have explored that route. And I know that they have found, you know, a ton of items along that route, um, you know, in the years since. There, I'm sure there's probably... Probably plenty left. It would be uh, it would be interesting to know if anybody marked the site where John Snyder was buried because clearly he was buried in a coffin. They probably put a cross on him, and they explored this site really well. Even the very next year, because people were going back trying to get their possessions, and people were just very curious. This was huge national news, and you know people went back. I just wonder if they ever found him and, and kept that grave marked. I don't know. I didn't look that up. Right. Poor Snyder. He sounded like a lot of fun, and he was very popular amongst the party. Yeah, he was. He was. I wish I could have found out more about him. We know he came from Ohio, but gosh, John Snyder. Can you, unless his name was John Smith, I don't know if you could have, uh, or John Miller. I don't know if you could have picked out a more common <laughs> name. They just did not know where he came from. That's very true. All right. Well, this is the end of the first part of our Donner Party episode. Join us again Sunday for the second part. We'll tell you what happens next and introduce you to our third featured Ohioan, a man who some say was a little too comfortable eating his fellow travelers. dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. 
You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.